Well, hello there, top teachers. We are your hosts, Bridget Spackman. And Michelle Emerson. And we are here to make your life easier by helping you master your time, organization, and productivity as a teacher. Listen, I have a question for y'all. If you were to take a flight and you could only take a few things in your backpack, what would you take? The essentials, right? In this episode, we're going to discuss our thoughts on essentialism and how to build and focus on the essentials in your life and how to prioritize what truly matters. That was a good little connection there. I like that Thank lady. <laughs> but first, we are going to hear a TSH from Mandy. Mandy says, my time sucking hurdle is what I affectionately call the redo blues. It sounded like that needed audio. I don't know why. I know. I know. Sometimes I get ahead on a task just to get new information at the last minute that requires me to completely redo the task. This makes me sad. So then I have the redo blues. I can't control every spontaneous change that occurs, but how can I better prepare for these issues so that I'm not singing the blues? Thanks for all you ladies do to inspire and motivate teachers. So, uh, Michelle, you're going to have to help me because my brain hurts. Um, But one of the things that I would question first is what are the tasks that you are being asked to redo? For example, is it a lesson that you are given information about and then you're like, well, now I have to redo this whole lesson? Is it how you have your schedule created? Is it, you know, emails or, you know, assessments that you're delivering or analyzing that you're having to redo, I would almost have to have an understanding of what is it specifically you're redoing to understand why you're having to change so many things. Does that make sense, Michelle? It does. And what's interesting is as I read this TSH from Mandy in my brain, I was like, oh, I remember that happening. Like I remember there being times where I would do something and then get new information and have to redo it. And yeah, it stinks. Thinking back, I can't remember like a specific example so of when that happened. I have one. Okay. I have one. So here's an example that happened last year. So we had to give assessments, you know, during each particular parts of the year where you would do like a beginning of the assessment, middle of the year, and then an end of the year assessment. And it was told to me, it was like maybe a month before the end of school that we put all of the assessments within their curriculum folders and then their folders followed them throughout the year and teachers kept adding like exemplars from the year, right? Okay. And then about a week before the end of school, I had already had all my assessments done. They came back and said, nope, that's not what we're doing. And then I had to go through all of their curriculum folders, take out those assessments and then send those like it, it just changed yeah of how they wanted to redo things now that is incredibly annoying and there's not much that you can do as far as that goes because it's like you're being proactive you're not waiting until the last minute which is great but then you're like really bitter and you're like what in the heck i did all this work and now you're gonna change it on me like why yeah it's interesting because I I don't know if there's a solution in terms of preventing those changes, right? Because as you mentioned, you can't control it. It just happens. Right. I think it's about your mindset going in and realizing if I'm going to be proactive, I am accepting the fact that it may not work out in my favor. I may have to do extra work because I chose to be proactive, but 
I would look at it from the perspective of, for the most part, being proactive is going to benefit you more than it's going to hurt you. There may be some situations where it does come back to bite you, but for the most part, you are going to reap the benefits. I'm going to share a quick it kind of relates or something that, you know, it reminded me of when I was in high school, I loved to get ahead on homework as much as I could. And I had a business management class where every single chapter, my teacher would assign like questions at the end of the chapter of the book that we had to answer. That was our homework. So the first like two weeks of school, I went through the entire book and answered all of the questions. Like I got it all done at the beginning uh-huh. so that I, all I had to do was turn in my paper. Well, oh, wow. That's impressive. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it was in like January or February. I got sick. And one of my friends, gosh, I still remember this, Joe, he sat next to me in that class and I was sick. He brought me a ginger ale because I had never really had ginger ale. And he's like, it helps you when you, when you're sick. I'm like, okay. So it was a can. I put it in my backpack. It exploded, which I should have seen coming. Right. Makes sense. It exploded and got my binder, which had all of my homework papers wet. So then, oh, it gets better. I go home and, you know, I'm telling my dad about it and the the papers are still wet. And my dad goes, well, we can microwave them, (laughs) which is true, which is true. So we started microwaving it. And originally we were doing like one sheet at a time and he would do it for like 10 seconds and it would come out dry. It was great. Well, then my dad goes, okay, well, let's, let's speed it up. So he takes a stack of them. I don't know, like 20, 25 sheets of paper, puts it in. He puts it in longer. Bridget, it burst into flames in the middle of it. it. Oh my gosh. I saw the picture of this. So he takes it out. We like blow on it. So now I have these papers that are like burned in the middle. I took it into my teacher. He just laughed at me, but I like explained it all. And I'm pretty sure he excused me from the homework. So in that case, like I was proactive and then it did come back to kind of bite me, Oh my! Gosh. but it made for a really good story. <laughs> it did. I really enjoyed the story. That is fantastic. <laughs> oh boy. So Mandy, I don't know if that helped, but those are our thoughts. <laughs> well, you know what? I do think that Mandy, as you listen to this book, there is a section in like the last part and Michelle, like I'm trying so hard to like go back and find it, but it's it's very challenging to like make the notes and then go back through and like find all of the different pieces. But um, in the book, they do talk about like planning for every possible type of scenario mm. that's out there. And it's almost as if like you have to kind of like if you know things are going to change to like get yourself out of the blues. It's almost like you're planning for those different scenarios. Yeah, I know we'll talk about it more when we get to that part, but it was the buffer chapter. And he talked about that the only thing we can expect is the unexpected. Unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Okay. So guys, if you want to listen to last January's, and if you haven't figured out that we have a pattern here on this podcast, then we have a pattern on the podcast. Every January, we do a book review. Um, And so last year, we did David Allen's Getting Things Done, and that was episode 161. Um, We have one every January and then every July. Am I right? Yeah, we do it at some point in the summer, usually July. Yeah, usually July. So if you want to go back and listen, we're going to leave some links down in our show notes so that you guys can go and check out those episodes. So this year, we are going to be doing a book review of Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less by Greg McEwen. Now, I'm going to read. Hold on. Let me grab my book. Okay. 
Ooh, I had to stretch a little bit. Good job. Yes. I'm going to read like the inside cover for just a short kind of synopsis of the book. That way you have an idea of what it's about. So it says, essentialism isn't about getting more done in less time. It's about getting only the right things done. Have you ever found yourself stretched too thin? Do you simultaneously feel overworked and underutilized? Do you often, or sorry, are you often busy, but not productive? Do you feel like your time is constantly being hijacked by other people's agendas? If you answered yes to any of these, the way out is the way of the essentialist. Essentialism is more than a time management strategy or a productivity technique. It is a systematic discipline for discerning what is absolutely essential, then eliminating everything that is not, so we can make the highest possible contribution toward the things that truly matter. By focusing us to apply more selective criteria for what is essential, the Disciplined pursuit of less empowers us to reclaim control of our own choices about where to spend our precious time and energy instead of giving others the implicit permission to choose for us. Essentialism is not one more thing. It's the whole new way of doing everything. It's about doing less but better in every area of our lives. Essentialism is a movement whose time has come. So if you want to join in with us and you want to read the book as well, we will leave the link in the show notes. You can also just search for it on Amazon. Again, it is called Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less by Greg McEwen. Now, McEwen is spelled M-C-K-E-O-W-N. This book is broken into four parts and we are going to do Basically the same thing for this episode. We're going to kind of chunk it into those four parts. Part one is essence. Part two is explore. Part three is eliminate. And part four is execute. So before we jump into like the meat of it, Bridget, I'm just curious, like what were your overall thoughts or like impression of the book? So I do, I listened through it through audiobook. Um, I did not get it as a Kindle. Originally, my plan was to do it both audiobook and Kindle and almost have both of them going at the same time. Unfortunately, with me getting sick and I kind of got to a part, I think it was in part four, where he talks about like planning for all of the different things and like starting small in the beginning. I was like, oh, dang it. I should have done that with this book (laughs) because I waited until the last minute. And of course, things went wrong with me not feeling great. So it was a little challenging for me to get into in the very beginning. And I honestly don't know if it just was because I wasn't feeling well. But here's what I will say. One, I like the organization of the book. Yes. I like the parts and I like how in every single chapter there is a word that he focuses on that kind of goes through the meaning of that entire chapter. And so once I really wrapped my head around that, because again, I'm listening through audiobook, so I don't see the chapters. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit harder for me to get into. Um, I thought in general, the book was well-written. I liked the stories that he had that went along with it. He did get some tips. I don't believe he goes in depth with the tips enough in a, in a way. Um, and I will love to hear your thoughts on that, but I was able to be reaffirmed with some of the things that I'm already doing. But then also get some things that I was able to take away from the book that I was like, oh, yeah, I need to do that. I know I need to do that, but I needed somebody to say that in order for me to like start putting that into practice. 
Yeah, my thoughts are very similar. Now, I, y'all know, I'm a physical book girly. (laughs) I just operate best with that. So I will give y'all a heads up. Next week's podcast episode, episode 212, is going to be a week in my life as I was reading the book. Now, I finished the book in like two days. (laughs) So I read it on Sunday and Monday in the week of the life. But then the rest of the week, I kind of talk about how I'm finding connections to my life. So you'll hear more about my thoughts in that episode. But I agree. I loved how it was organized. And I love how each chapter had a word. It makes me think about last week's episode where we talked about choosing a word for the year. Yeah. If you are struggling to come up with a word, look at the chapters of this. Like that could really help you. That's a great idea. Yeah. That could help you come up with a word. My biggest gripe with the book, and I think you touched on this, is that there's not a lot of actionable advice or ideas or strategies. I think a lot more of it is like mindset based, which is valid. And it's something we all kind of need. As you mentioned, those reminders, like we know we should be doing it, but it's good to hear it again. Yeah. But I would have loved more like concrete strategies. Like last year when we read Getting Things Done, there were specific things where it's like, oh, I'm going to start doing a weekly review. And this book, it was more of like, your mindset toward life. And so I didn't love it as much as like getting things done for that reason, but I did still enjoy just the concepts in the book. And as you mentioned, I think it was a good reminder. And I think one other piece to that is that I felt a lot of the times that I was like, but there are certain things that I don't have choice with. Yeah. (laughs) And I think we're going to get into it in that first part. So It'll be interesting as we go through each of the parts, just kind of our biggest takeaways and our connections to life, because there are things that I'm like, okay, great for that CEO that they can have this person pick up their dry cleaning or to do that one big thrilly thing because they have the money to do it. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I don't have that luxury. (laughs) I don't know. We'll get into it. Yeah. So let's go ahead and jump in. So as we mentioned, part one is called Essence. And he even tells you at the beginning of that part that it's it's very much like mindset focused. Um, If you're okay, Bridget, I wanted to kick off by first addressing like why in just society there is so much non-essentialism. Because I think it's important to kind of look at it from the other perspective. If we're all desiring essentialism, it's like, well, why do we find ourselves focusing on non-essentialism? And he boils it down to, we have too many choices, which I agree. There's too much social pressure. I agree. And then there's this idea that you can have it all that like just isn't accurate. And so at the end of the day, like we all want this essentialist life and we agree with the principles of essentialism, but our actions don't always align with that. It's kind of easier said than done. And I think as human beings, we have a lot of fear surrounding it because we've talked about that uh, self-determination theory of motivation where you want to feel like you belong. It's that relatedness component. You want to feel accepted by others. And so if you're kind of going against the grain and doing what's different than everyone else, you then feel like you don't belong. And that's hard. Yeah, I really like the wording that he gave um, because there were three things that he says people will often say out loud, which is so funny. Or maybe they say it to themselves because I'm like, oh, man, I say that thing. I I say these things. Um, So there are three things. It's the, well, I have to, Mm -hmm. right, person that I have to do this. Like, I don't really have that choice. Like, I have to go and get that done. I often say that. 
or say, well, it's all important. Mm -hmm. Now, I feel like I've gotten better with this because now I will often say, but if everything is important, then nothing is important. Right. So that is now my new saying. But if I'm at home and I'm like, well, it's all important. The laundry needs to get done. The vacuuming needs to get done. Like all of these things need to end up happening. Like how am I supposed to get this all done? Right. And then the final thing is he says, and I can do both. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I can do both of those. I can get the, both of those things done. And I think my people pleasers that are out there, if you're like me, because I am very much a people pleaser, I'm like, yeah, 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 I can do both of those. I can get that done. And that will often put so many constraints on yourself as far as trying to get things accomplished. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And going back to what you mentioned about the the choice and people saying, well, I don't have a choice. So that was the first like actual chapter where it had like a word. And so in the choice chapter, he mentions, and this really stuck with me. He says, the options, so kind of like the, the choices, right, yeah. are things, but a choice is an action. And so you don't always have control over the options, but at the end of the day, the choice you make is yours. It reminded me of when I was in high school, every single day on the morning announcements, they ended it by saying, have a great day or not, the choice is yours. Yes. And we used to always make fun of it, but it's so funny because I'll see people I was friends with in high school on Facebook, like bringing that back up. And it's just funny how it kind of resonates because it is true. And that reminded me of the book Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankel, which if you have not read that book, that is like a must read. Everyone needs to read that book in their life. So Victor E. Frankel was a Holocaust survivor, and he wrote Man's Search for Meaning like after he got out of the concentration camp. And this was a quote from the book that just resonates with this. Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And he talks a lot about how you you don't always have control over those options, but you do get to make the choice. And I think as teachers, we almost have this like learned helplessness, and he touches on learned helplessness in the book. But I think it's because of how broken the education system is that over time we feel like we have no control. Yes. But at the end of the day, like you always have control over your choices or as Victory e. Frankel says, you always have control over your attitude in the situation. Like yes. no one else can control that but you. Yeah, I took away uh, this idea of helplessness, that learned helpness, helplessness that we have. And he says that so many of us lose control of our ability to choose through learned helplessness. And was it the dog experiment that he talks about in this chapter where he said they did a study and it was actually really sad about how some dogs would get like electrocution some of them would not and the the ones who had no control over anything would just accept like the the little zaps the feelings of zaps and it was because they had learned helplessness and so he talks about it becoming something that we're just so used to feeling yeah. Of just this feeling of being overwhelmed that we approach our lives through this very like passive method. Mm-hmm. And so I think that piece resonated with me the most because when we forget about our ability to be able to choose, we become helpless. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? And over time, I think that wears on you because when you feel like you're quote unquote trying everything and nothing's working, you do kind of give up. And I think that's where a lot of like, I think it ties into burnout. I think burnout is different because burnout is, is more so like just the exhaustion and whatnot. But when you feel like you're not able to make a choice, that can definitely help to amplify that. Yeah. The other two chapters in this part were called... I love you and I have the same connection because I wrote the... <laughs> I wrote the rule, the the thing that you have in parentheses. I wrote that same thing down. <laughs> I'm going to make you say it because I feel like you're not sure how to pronounce it. What? No, 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 no. Not the quotations, lady. I can't say that. Oh, okay. I can only say the thing in parentheses. Oh. All right. You're kind of losing me. I don't. I'm sorry. Can you stop talking hurts. in code? Okay, sorry. So chapter three talks about the discern. I'm going to be very honest. I don't know what discern means. I kind of have an idea, like I can infer what that word means, but I don't have a total understanding of it. But this is where I made the connection to the 80-20 rule. And you did as well, because you put it in parentheses. Okay, so (laughs) let's backtrack. So discern would be like differentiate is a good Okay, that's kind of what I thought, but mine was not differentiate. Yeah. Well, and in that chapter, he talks about the Pareto principle, which is the 80 20 rule. Pareto principle. Yeah. That's where I was like, I don't think she knows how to play it. I just say 80 20 rule. Yeah. Okay. I can't even. So the author talks about the Pareto principle and, and how 80% of the results come from 20% of the work. But I'll be honest, this chapter, and maybe it's because I'm already familiar with the Pareto principle. I don't feel like he went into enough detail on like, how do you make that differentiation? How do you decide what's part of the 80? What's part of the 20? Because that's the hard part, right? Like it sounds good in theory, but how do you actually decide? Yeah, he would often say like, you're distinguishing the vital few from the trivial many. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but how do you distinguish that vital few? Mm -hmm. And again, I guess it goes back to this part is very much the mindset component and just knowing that you're wanting to take away just a few things versus trying to do all of the things. And I think he kind of goes into it into part four, if I remember correctly, but he doesn't really go in depth. The only thing that I really took away from this is one, I really liked the a Southwest conversation that he had about how Southwest really did the 80-20 rule. They took they took what other um, airline companies were doing and they said, we're not going to try to do all the, of, all the things because if we do all the things and nothing is important, it kind of goes back to that thing of if everything is important, nothing is important. And they really trimmed it down to focusing on very few things, which made them incredibly successful. Yeah. I think my other big takeaway for this first part was the trade-off chapter. Yes. And in that chapter, he talks about how anytime there is a trade-off, it's going to involve two things we want which is why it's hard to pick just one. And that's why we find ourselves saying, well, I want both. And it goes back to that idea of we think we can have it all, but in reality, we can't. The reason it is a trade-off is because you have to pick one, even though you want both, you got to choose one. So you have to ask yourself, what do I want to go big on? And then 
I kind of made the connection of it's that idea of trading what you want now for what you want most. And that to me is discipline, right? It's being able to make sacrifices in the moment because you can see the bigger picture. And that for me is just a good reminder because I think in the moment when you constantly feel like you're sacrificing, you're like, well, what am I doing this for? And you have to keep your mindset on looking further out at the horizon. Like what is that bigger purpose? And so one of the things that he talks about in this chapter, and I think a tangible way of really thinking about this is that to keep a journal. And he said, but instead of like writing everything down that you've experienced in that day, force yourself to write down as little as possible. Mm. And it's really going to require you to think about what you've done and sift out like what you really consider to be essential and important. And you're going to start to kind of see patterns there. And so then he tells you, you know, go back, read through your journal entries to see if you can find like this bigger picture of what you find essential. What is that trade-off that you're really wanting to focus on? Yeah, I liked how he worded it that when you're writing in the journal, write less than you want to because most people, they will start journaling and they go ham. Like the first week, they write a lot. And then (laughs) after that, they feel pressure to always match that. And so they end up stopping because they're like, well, I don't want to write that much. So he said to write less than you think you want to. (laughs) He was speaking to my soul right there. (laughs) Yes. Yes, me too. We are going to take a quick break. And when we return, we will jump into part two, which is explore. Bridget, it is a new year and you know what they say. Um, New year, time to set goals that I'm not going to keep past January. Way to put your positive pants on. But yeah, (laughs) unfortunately, that is the case for a lot of people. But that's because they don't plan out their goals. Thankfully, we have something that can help with that. If you set any health or fitness goals for 2024, you need to grab our digital fitness planner. It has tons of templates that you can use to map out your goals, track your progress along the way, and stay motivated all year long. Head over to teachingonthedouble.com forward slash store to grab your digital fitness planner and the matching stickers, both of which will be on sale 20% off for the entire month of January. And now back to the episode. Okay, so we're back with part two, which is all about exploring. Now, there are four chapters. Am I right? Or are there five? Five chapters. No, there were five. So it's five chapters in this. Escape, look, play, sleep, and select. Okay. So here's where I think my brain is kind of struggling to understand this part. And I, I think it's because he talked about how in that first part, it was all about mindset. So in this part, correct me if I'm wrong, it's all about getting people to identify what is essential to their lives. So it's almost like those steps to helping them to identify what's important. Is that how you took this away? Yeah, I I think so. And again, it's one of those like easier said than done, but that was, it was kind of like guidelines for that. Yeah. So the very first chapter in part two of Explore is called Escape. Now, I made a huge connection to the book Deep Work. 
mm, with this yeah. one. And there was one quote that he started it off with, with, and it's from Pablo Picasso. And he says, with great solitude, no serious work is possible. I loved that quote. Loved it. So I wrote that one down. But I don't have a ton for that chapter because I, in my brain, I kept thinking, oh, this is deep work. This is this is literally giving yourself yourself the time, the space to be alone without distractions to really get the work that you need to get done done. Yeah, here were my takeaways from that chapter. There was a quote. He was talking about a conversation he had with a friend and his friend asked him, "Can you remember what it was like to be bored?" And that really oh, stuck that was with a good me. One. Because I've had a lot of moments lately where I've caught myself constantly feeling like I had to have some kind of stimulation, a podcast playing, a video playing, and I don't give myself enough just quiet time to think. And I'm never bored. Like as soon as I'm bored, I want some kind of entertainment. So for me, that was a little bit of a wake up call, but you're right. He talks about creating space and space, I think in the physical sense, as well as like time to be able to design, concentrate, and read. And it made me think about how as a teacher, you also need to do this for your students, right? And so I think building this into like your routine at the start of class or end of class, it reminds me of when I was in elementary school and we would have dear time. And I was not a big reader, so I didn't love dear time. I fake read most of the time, I'll be honest. I remember putting the book on my lap and like closing my eyes, but still it was just quiet time for me to like decompress. And I think I needed that a lot of the time. So just keeping in mind, like how you can also apply that within the classroom. I used a lot of headspace in my class mm. in my classroom so when i really i wanted the kids to practice like practice that mindfulness to get them just to like be in their own thoughts i would play one of the headspace because headspace and i don't quote me i think they still do this like if you are a teacher you can get a free account i think so yeah so you can have the app and then play one piece and the kids would just learn how to be mindful which so many of them cannot do they cannot just be in their own space and just kind of think and let their thoughts wander like they all start to get super fidgety but the more and more you practice it and do the like the apps itself like they start to kind of relax and enjoy that time yeah So then the next chapter was called Look, and it was all about figuring out the point, like the bigger meaning. And he mentions that it isn't enough to know the who, what, when, and where. You need to be like a journalist and you need to know like what does it mean and why does it matter? And obviously this is hard. It reminds me of us trying to get students to do this with texts all the time, but yet we struggle to do it as adults in our own life. And it also reminded me of the quote. So this is from Chuck Palahniuk, which he is the author of Fight Club. So if you've ever read Fight Club. No way. Yeah. So he says, people list, sorry, people don't listen. They just wait for their turn to talk. And I think that is incredibly accurate. Like people don't take enough time to digest information and like really think about it and figure out what does it mean? Why does it matter? They're just so quick to try to respond. And I would always tell my students, you have two ears and one mouth. You're supposed to listen twice as much as you speak. And I think that that's just like a good reminder for all of us, like for kids, for adults, like we all need to spend more time like actually listening and then being able to figure out what is the point. 
Yeah. So in each of the chapters, he does something really interesting where he talks about like the non-essentialist versus the essentialist. Mm, And he gives you some examples. And I did write these examples down for this chapter because I thought it was really good. So this one was a non-essentialist hears everything being said. An essentialist pays attention to what is not being said. Mm. Oh, I loved that. Like chills, like goosebumps on my body right now. And then he says, a non-essentialist is overwhelmed by all the information. An essentialist scans to find the essence of the information. And I think that this is really, really important, especially for us as educators, where we're getting so much information. And I feel like we would go to these like faculty meetings and you're like, whoa, what just happened? We just got dumped on with information. Mm. But it's like if we really kind of think back and we look at that information and just scan for like the big ideas, like, what is it that I'm really trying to take away here? Because obviously I can't do everything. Goes right. back to that essentialism, duh. Um, but I thought that was good. I'm going to be honest. I didn't love this chapter as much. I think my brain was kind of wandering <laughs> during some parts of it. Because the whole, like, journalist metaphor, I think, lost me at some places. But... I did kind of write down some of the ways that he talks about doing this. He says, keep a journal, which is something that we talked about in part one. He go, he says to get out into the field, meaning as in like, is it that you're just kind of putting yourself in the situation it's it, that's happening so that you can gain a better perspective with, of what's going on? Is Essentially, that how you took yeah. That? Yeah. And then he said to clarify the question, which I really like this one, because I think sometimes what we do is we will just hear something, but we don't clarify by asking more questions. And this is very evident in faculty meetings because people are just like, all right, I'm just want to be done. I just want to be done. But then we come out of those faculty meetings and then what do teachers do? Hey, do you know what that person meant? With? Do you know what they're talking about when they said this? And you're like, oh my gosh, why didn't you just ask the question to clarify? <laughs> yeah. Well, and when he talked about clarifying the question, what he used as like an example was if I'll use a teacher example. Okay. If a group of teachers are planning a lesson and they start off with like, okay, here's the objective of the lesson. And then they start planning. And then, you know, before you know it, they've got like a cute activity. You would keep going, okay, but what's the objective of this lesson? Okay. But what's the objective of this lesson? And you keep coming back to that to kind of keep you on track because sometimes we stray and we have to keep reminding ourselves like, but what is the point? What are we trying to do? Okay. I misinterpreted that. Yeah, but it's okay. But I think that that is part of it too. Is is gaining clarity in because he mentions that in one of the chapters about how like we don't have enough clarity. Yeah, yeah. and that was one of the things in getting things done. I remember was like you you've got to clarify because otherwise like you're just spinning your wheels and not right? making progress. I know. Okay, I like this next chapter. <laughs> yeah. So the next one was play, and he defines play as anything we do simply for the joy of doing, rather than as a means to an end. And there was an example in the chapter of a lady who had like an easy button, like the Staples easy yes. button, and that brought me back because my first year of teaching, I had an easy button, and this came from one of my high school teachers. She had an easy button, and when we would turn in like our test or quiz, if we thought it was easy, we would hit the button, and Aww. half the time, we just hit the button because we wanted to hit the button, but I then used that within my classroom as well, and 
hearing that in the book is like an example of play. I was like, oh, like that's, that's a really, I never thought about it that way. And it's cool to hear that because I do think we need to make sure we are incorporating play into the classroom for our students. And I think it gets harder to do this as adults because our daily lives feel so busy that we feel like we don't have time for play. Yeah. I will say that there was a section where he talks a lot about schools and schools being the definition of like what kills play. Yeah. And he brings up a lot of like the industrial revolution there. And I've got to be honest, I want to kind of push back on that, that frame of thought, because I feel as though now, is it everyone? No, it's not. But I do think that a lot of teachers nowadays incorporate a lot of play. Yes. Now, is it embedded in every single moment of every single day? Absolutely not. That's not realistic. You can't just play all day. But I do believe that we bring in a lot of life and excitement and play into the things that we're doing now. So I I did want to, I was like, "Mm, I'm going to push back on that because I don't necessarily know if I agree that school kills play now. I agree with you. And I think this is where if someone is not in the industry, they have a very warped perspective because I was recently listening to a podcast. It's a fitness guy that I follow and I love his fitness content. He was talking about his experience with school growing up and essentially he had ADHD, but it wasn't diagnosed until way later on. But he was talking about school in a very negative light and a lot of like the teachers in negative lights. And, you know, he had his own experience and that is valid. But I think as a result, like he sees school through a very different lens and not being in the industry, like not actually hearing from teachers. I just think it's hard to know like what our true intentions Mm -hmm. are and what we have to fight against and push back on, like as educators in order to try to promote the best for our students. Like it's, it's very convoluted. And if you're not in it, it gets a lot more difficult to see that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're ready to go on. Go on to the next one. Yeah, the next chapter was (laughs) the next chapter was sleep. So there was a quote from this chapter, and I was like, "That's me. That is me." He said, "The real challenge for the people who thrive on challenges is Uh not to work hard." Uh And I was like, "This is literally me." It reminds me of when I have like rest days from the gym. Those days, like she still can't rest, (laughs) y'all. Yeah, I can't. It's like that is hard for me, and so I felt very seen. I just have to say that. (laughs) I'm so glad. I think the biggest thing that I took away from this is he would repeat a lot about protecting the asset. Mm. And at the end of the day, the asset is you. You are the Mm. asset. You are the thing that's contributing, that's making the change, that's doing the thing. You're the asset. And in order to protect that asset, because you want that to keep going, you need to provide yourself with sleep. And they talked a lot about like... um they talked a lot about how like if you're not getting that sleep that you are almost comparable to like somebody who's drunk yeah did you see did you hear that part that was crazy well you didn't hear it you read it I read it but But yes (laughs) I thought that that was so interesting but he talks about how it's so essential for us to be able to have that time sleeping because that is when our brain is starting to make those neuro connections so it's making those connections and each time they're getting stronger and stronger and so if we're not getting enough sleep our performance is really going to take a huge dip. And so he would give examples of like all these people who were really like 
um, high like performing people in really large companies and about how they would just spend time sleeping and recouping in order to be able to protect the asset. Yeah. And going back to that chapter called Look, where it was all about figuring out the point, to me, the point of this chapter It's for you to understand how important sleep is because it gets easier to protect the asset when you understand the impact that it has on the rest of your life. And I really enjoyed, he talked about a study of violinists. It was by Kay Anders Erickson. It's called The Thousand Hour Rule. And it was all about how the best violinists spend more time practicing than the like merely good students. But a less well-known finding from the study, and I had never heard this until reading it in the book, was that the second most important factor, so above and beyond just practice, was sleep. So the best violinists actually slept more than just the good violinists. And I was like, oh, like that's enough to convince me of its importance. And I just want to throw this out there to everyone. If you have never listened to any of the interviews by Matthew Walker, through podcast or YouTube, you need to. So he is a sleep expert. He has phenomenal interviews. If you just go on YouTube and type in like Matthew Walker, you'll find a bunch of them. But one fact that he shared in one of the interviews I listened to, I think it was one with Diary of a CEO. Mm. He shared that you would actually die of sleep before you would die of starvation. And that I was like, Wow. That is crazy. Yeah. And so it just, it gets your mindset more on like, all right, I need to make sure that I I get enough sleep. My issue, and this is where he didn't go into this. I have gotten to the point where I will allow myself plenty of time to sleep. Like I prioritize that in my schedule. However, I struggle with actually falling asleep. Not as much as I used to. It's definitely gotten older and I'm still searching for like the perfect solution, but there will just be some nights where I will lay there for two, three, four hours, oh not gosh. able to fall asleep because I just can't turn my brain off. Like I don't, I think for me, like I hate to talk about the whole anxiety because I'm the believer, like everyone has anxiety. But I think for me, maybe it, it shows up in that way. Yes, like it most often shows up in that way for you. Yeah. So yeah, I get stressed and all I want to do is sleep. Yeah. <laughs> It's so funny how we're so different. It is. It is. Um, This last chapter, lady, all I kept thinking about was you. Yeah. Yeah. So chapter nine is called Select. And the biggest thing that you're taking away from this is that if it's not a heck yes, then it's a... (laughs) It's a no. It's a no. It is a no. And so they talk about being so extreme with your criteria on the tasks and responsibilities that you're taking on. And so they talk about adopting a 90% rule and start by considering like what is the most important criteria for me to make the decision that I'm making, right? Like am I 90%? Am I going to use this 90%? He would often bring up a closet in this one, right? Was it the closet example that he would bring up for like Yeah, clothes? he used a closet analogy kind of throughout. He started with a closet analogy and then he would come back to it okay, throughout the book. Okay. Yeah. So he talks a lot about just like, are you going to wear this again? And if you're not going to wear it, if you're 90% sure, like to get rid of it, like you, if it's not a yes, then it has to be a clear no. Yeah. And that was literally my note from this chapter, which is something I've always said. If it's not a heck yes, it's a no. But as you were just talking and you mentioned having super selective criteria, my brain went to, even though that sounds hard, it makes it so much easier to make decisions because all you have to do is follow that criteria. And last night, Billy and I were playing Yahtzee 
And I remember like at the end, one of the rounds that we played, all I had left were my fives and sixes. And so as I'm rolling, it made it super easy because I'm like, well, I'm just going to keep either fives or sixes. Like I don't need to look at all the other options because those are my only choices. And it made it so much easier in that moment to decide like, all right, which dice am I keeping and which ones am I re-rolling? Yeah. But speaking of rolling, should we roll into part three? Let's do it, lady. (laughs) So part three is called Eliminate. And this one had, again, five different chapters, Clarify, Dare, Uncommit, edit and limit. So Bridget, what were your thoughts on clarify? Um, So with clarifying, it was really just about making one decision that makes a thousand is what Mm. I wrote down. Yeah. So I think the biggest piece that I took away and I have it like in bold and italicized, it's he talks a lot about essential intent. So you need to have one objective that is both going to be inspirational and concrete. And a lot of the times he says that a team needs to clarify goals and roles. And what does that team stand for? And I think oftentimes, and I made the connection to like staff meetings or like PLCs that we often did not have clarifying goals and roles for what was happening during those meetings. And so everybody left frustrated because it's like, oh, that was a waste of my time. I could have been doing something else better with it. And it's because we don't have those clarifying goals and roles. So that was, I think, the biggest thing that I took away. I did write down, he talks about like the two quadrants box. I kind of got it where he talks about like where the essential intent kind of falls. Yeah. But I like, I don't know if there was a visual in the book that you got to see there was. that I did not. Yeah, there <laughs> okay. was. And and it it was helpful. But again, it, with a lot of those quadrants, I think the struggle becomes, but which quadrant does this thing yes. fit into? But what I will say when he mentions having that like your intent that's inspirational and concrete and it's meaningful and it's measurable. It reminds me of that idea that if you're living your best life, you're not posting about it on social media because you're too busy actually living it. Yeah. And there was a quote about like the concreteness because I think a lot of times when we set intents or goals, we almost feel like it has to be so extravagant. That's what's going to inspire people. But he says, The concreteness of the objective made it real. The realness made it inspiring. And so what really resonates with people is when they're like, oh, well, I could do that. Like when it feels tangible and real. So I think that's important to keep in mind. My only other takeaway, and this was just a connection I made, I feel like for new teachers, we often say like focus on one area. And I think that's really good advice. I think we as educators, we lose sight of that as time goes on. We start to think we can take on all of the things, but we can't. We need to keep that idea of having one focus as the years go on. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that sentiment. Um, So the next chapter is called Dare. And I think for me, the biggest piece with Dare is about the power of, he says, a graceful no. Mm, And I think that is key. It's not just about saying no, because we understand and we talk about this so much on this podcast about the importance of saying no so that you can open yourself for other opportunities. Like you can't say yes to everything. But he talks a lot about a graceful no. And he does give some strategies on like how to say no in the very end. But there was a quote from Stephen Covey. And it was such a beautiful story about his little girl 
Yeah. Do you remember that one about yeah. they were having this really big day and he ran into like this person that he knew and he works for and he that guy invited them out to like this really awesome dinner and Stephen Covey was like, no, I have really I have something else that's like really special planned and that the daughter is basically telling this story to the author of the book and he's like, that's the thing that resonated with her because he turned down this other opportunity to be able to spend time with her and like it just gives me goosebumps and I really loved it. But there was a quote there that he says that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Yeah. I love yeah. that. I was like, wait a second. I need to listen to that a couple of times because my brain was not functioning at the moment. But I mean, that's the biggest piece of it is just like, just say no to things, but you could do it very gracefully and respectfully. Yeah. I like how Greg McEwen says we can say no and regret it for a few minutes or we can say yes and regret it for days, weeks, months, and even years. Yes. And I think it's important to keep in mind like why we want, like why it's so hard to say no. And there was a quote I wanted to read. Mm -hmm. We have good reasons to fear saying no. We worry we'll miss out on a great opportunity. We're scared of rocking the boat, stirring things up, burning bridges. We can't bear the thought of disappointing someone we respect and like. None of this makes us a bad person. It's a natural part of being human. Yet, as hard as it can be to say no to someone, failing to do so can cause us to miss out on something far more important. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what you were hitting on. Like the main thing is the main thing. I think it's important to keep in mind that denying a request or like saying no to something an opportunity is not the same as denying the person yeah like that, that a good one yeah and then he also mentions that like giving someone a clear no is more graceful than a vague or non-committal yes because yes. I can think of times when I've kind of been toyed along I've with that. I'm really bad about uh, that <laughs> and, it, and it's very frustrating like when you're on the receiving end of that you're like if it's a no just tell me like that yeah. way I can make other plans so yeah. I think keeping that in mind and yes he does give some strategies he calls it like a no repertoire yes so one thing he mentions is just the awkward pause so if someone asks you something like don't answer right away and sometimes within that pause they'll be like oh it's okay if you can't and yeah. it gives you an easy out um, let me check my calendar and get back to you. Like oh, that's a super that a easy one. one. And then I loved this. If your admin is coming to you, asking you to do something like putting something extra yeah. on your plate saying, okay, yeah, I can do that. What should I deprioritize? De yes, so like, Hey, one. if you want me to make time for this, what do you want me to take off of my plate or wording it as like, all right, well, you're welcome to do X and I'm willing to do Y. So like, you're, if you want to do all that, great. Here's what I'm willing to do. And it just sets very clear boundaries. Yeah. No. And, and I, I have like the list of all of the different ways that he says that you should say no. But at the very end of it, my note is just we need to learn the slow yes and mm. the quick no. Yeah. And yeah. sorry. So I, I like thought that. that was great. All right. Next chapter is uncommit. And this was all about avoiding what he calls sunk cost bias. I've always heard it as the sunk cost fallacy, but it's this idea of like, I don't want to lose out on the time and energy I've already put into this. So I'm going to keep putting time and energy into it. But sometimes you just got to cut your losses. And he talked about getting over the fear of waste. This made me think of all the bad purchases I've made being influenced by social media. And sometimes when you buy something, you don't want to get rid of it. Cause you're like, I spent good money on it, but just get rid of it. Like it's, it's weighing you down. And if anything, like gift it to someone else, that way you feel less bad about just getting rid of it. 
And then he also talked about the status quo bias. And this is the mm, tendency. That's what I wrote down. Yeah. It's the tendency to continue doing something just because you've always done it. And I think teachers fall into that trap very, Education very in often. general falls into yes. that trap. Yes. And so one thing that he mentioned was applying a zero-based budgeting strategy to your time and schedule. So almost like starting from scratch. And if you had to recommit to everything, what would you put onto your schedule? Like what would you fill your time with? Because that can help you realize like what's essential and what's not. And he also talked about running a reserve pilot. So this is where you kind of quietly either eliminate or scale back on an activity for a few days or even weeks to see if it's really making a difference or whether anyone really cares. So maybe you've started like an initiative in your class and you put a lot of time and energy into it and your students don't even really care. And if you like slowly stop doing it, they're not even going to notice. Like that can be a really interesting way to kind of test the waters. Yeah. I mean, you hit kind of everything that I had there. So if you're okay, I'm going to move on. Go for I don't it. really have anything to add. Go for so it. So the next chapter is going to be chapter on edits. Um, and so he kind of goes back and talks about how like in chapter six, we talked about being a journalist. And so he relates a lot of what is he's talking about in this chapter to an editor and about really discerning what is going to be important. And so he talks about deliberate subtraction, mm -hmm. that it's not just about saying no, it's about removing anything that's just unnecessary or distracting around you. And so he gives these four very simple principles to really help you edit things out. So the first one is to like cut out options. So um, like cutting out the options that you don't necessarily need. The second one is going to be to condense. Doing less is harder. So trying to do um, condensing and being very clear and concise as possible with what you're wanting to achieve. The third piece is going to be correct. So you have to make clear sense of your per your purpose. And then it just goes back to that essential intent, knowing the intent for what you're trying to achieve. And then the last one is the edit less, which he does say like is a little bit counterintuitive, but it's about showing restraint, resisting the urge to like add your two cents, um, resisting the urge to like make a comment on something or to like hit a reply all on an email. And so it's editing less in some cases. Yeah. I just really like that wording of, of deliberate subtraction yeah. because again, it's, it's being mindful of like what you're choosing to cut and condense and correct and whatnot. Yeah. So then the last chapter in this section was called Limit, and this was all about boundaries, which we love. There was an analogy that I really liked. He said boundaries are a little like the walls of a sandcastle. The second we let one fall over, the rest of them come crashing down. And he talks about a story of, of a woman who kind of like put in boundaries in place with her supervisor because she had worked really hard to like create this buffer time for herself. And then her boss was trying to fill it yeah. and she pushed back and was like, no, this quote I really liked because I, I need to tell myself this sometimes. She said, I have planned for this time. I have worked hard for it and I deserve to have it guilt free. Yeah. There have been a lot of times where I will get work done in advance so that I can like relax or enjoy a vacation. And then I feel guilty for not working. And so that I was like, I need to tell myself that. And he talks a lot about like people coming to you with their problems. And he says not to rob people of their problems, because when people make their problems our problems, 
we are not helping them, we're enabling them. Because if we just solve it for them, they're never learning how to problem solve on their own. And so the idea of not robbing people of their problems, it makes it easier on us, but it's also doing them a favor. And then he talks about finding like your deal breakers, which are like the things Okay, let me wrap my head around this because I've always thought about it from the other perspective. I always think about my non-negotiables. So the things that I'm not willing to budge on, the deal breakers were more like the exact opposite of that. It's like thinking about what would like break your non-negotiable and and like, I I just remember it being the opposite, but it was like, oh, that's a different way. Yeah, I would have to go back and listen to that one because I don't think I I quite remember that part of it. The only thing that I really wrote down from this chapter is that boundaries are just are not there to constrain you, but they're there to help make your life easier and more enjoyable, which I often think about like how, and I guess it's kind of that same perspective of that deal breakers, right? Like it's almost like the reverse. Like sometimes we set the boundaries because we're like, this is a constraint. Like I can't go and do this. I can't go and do this. Like, no, 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 no. The boundary is there. You're doing this so that that way you can go and enjoy something else in your life. So it's like a mindset shift. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's something we always hear about and it's like, okay, easier said than done. But I think having that mindset shift really helps. Yeah. Part four. I have to say, I really enjoyed part four. Yeah. Cause this was execute. So it was more about actually <laughs> taking action. I know, but- <laughs> I know, I know, I know. So chapter 15 is all about buffer. And I know we've talked a little bit about buffer and having that buffer space, but it's the piece of, and we mentioned it kind of in the TSH a little bit earlier about we have to be able to expect the unexpected because things are going to happen. Bridget's going to get sick and not have time to read, or Mm -hmm. you're going to have your flight canceled or somebody else is going to drop the ball. Like things are going to happen. And so we have to keep in mind that we're creating a buffer to ensure that we're still achieving what we need to achieve. Yeah. And he talks about using extreme preparation and adding 50% to your time estimate. I loved that tip. I was like, oh my gosh, this is me. I need to do Uh this. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I thought about you in that moment because I'm pretty good at like, if I'm, for example, if I'm going somewhere, if Billy and I are going out to dinner in my head, I'll be like, all right, it's going to take us 30 minutes to drive there. So we need to leave. So we have 45 minutes just in case. I will say, and you'll hear about it next week in my week in the life, there wasn't an, an example of something that took me way longer than expected. And he talks about like the the time planning fallacy or something yeah. like that. But We're, it's this idea of even if you've done it before, you are still going to underestimate the time. Yeah. So like allow extra. I loved that. That really resonated with me because we all know that I'm very bad at getting my time. I can imagine the steps that it needs to take. Like I'm good at breaking things down really Uh small. However, I don't do the execution part well when it comes to the time. So I'm like, I'm going to add 100% of time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's interesting. It's like finding the amount that would work well for you. Yeah. Yeah, Um, for sure. Next chapter was subtract, and this was about identifying the quote unquote slowest hiker oh, I love and removing this one. the obstacle. <laughs> he talks about like if you have a group of people, rather than having the slowest person in the back, and so the rest of them are having to stop and wait for them to catch up, put the slowest hiker in the front so they're kind of setting the pace, and everyone behind them doesn't have a struggle trying to keep up. 
And I think about this a lot when it comes to tasks on my to-do list that linger. I always like to ask myself, what is preventing me from taking action on this? And I will do just the single next thing to like move the needle forward. Even if it's as simple as like drafting an email, making a phone call, whatever it is that I need to do to like get the ball rolling, I just go, all right, what can I do to make this easier? Yeah, for sure. And that was really kind of the biggest pieces that I took away as well. I mean, it's just about looking at the constraints and the obstacles and thinking like, how am I going to be able to achieve this? Like what, what obstacle do I need to remove in order to achieve this? And he even talks about mindset, which is that perfectionism piece. And I thought about you in that moment. I was like, oh, Michelle is often the perfectionism person. That's going to be the obstacle that gets in her way. And it's just about replacing that idea with done is better than great, like perfect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I enjoyed that one. So kind of on that note, the next chapter was progress. And this was about like creating and then celebrating small wins. He talks about how there's two primary internal motivators for people, achievement and then recognition for achievement. And I think that recognition for achievement is almost part of that. What people consider like external validation or like Mm -hmm. external motivation But that is a part of the internal. When you feel like those achievements are actually being recognized, it makes you want to do it more. Absolutely. And there were two big takeaways of this chapter for me. He talks about minimal viable progress Mm -hmm. and minimal viable preparation. I've used this a lot since reading this book. So it's all about what is the minimal amount I could do right now to prepare. And if you think about this in terms of like lesson planning, you can have like your template ready to go. You Mm -hmm. can already have the lesson topic listed out. You can have your books like stacked up, easy to get to. And I do think having a place to kind of capture ideas just to give you a springboard to go off of. So when you sit down to actually plan, you're not starting from scratch. You're like looking at any ideas you've captured can be really, really helpful for that. Yeah, those were the biggest things that I ended up taking away as well is starting early and starting very, very small, which I will oftentimes procrastinate and I wait until the last minute. But having that idea of, okay, when we said we were gonna read this book, versus waiting until the week before because I thought, oh, I'm going to keep it fresh in my brain so that way I'm ready to like do the podcast. Well, going back to the last chapter, something happened. I needed to add in that buffer room because I did not anticipate me getting sick. And so then it was like, oh, well, pickles, like I'm not feeling great and I'm not reading. And so everything ended up waiting until the last minute. But if I would have started small in the very beginning, I probably wouldn't have been so overwhelmed when we got to this podcast recording. Yeah. So I think I will use that phrase moving forward that like minimal viable progress and minimal viable preparation. Yeah. Next chapter was all you lady. It was. I wrote (laughs) on here. I said this was my favorite chapter. So it was called flow and it was all about routines. And so that's why it vibed with Uh me. But there was a quote I wanted to read. He says, instead of spending our limited supply of discipline on making the same decisions again and again, embedding our decisions into our routine allows us to channel that discipline towards some other essential activity. Mm. And so he talks about designing a routine that makes achieving what you have identified as essential the default. That way you can go into autopilot and just get it done. And then if you need to, you can mix up your routine. So he mentioned having like different routines for different days of the week. And so you can focus your energy on like a single theme each day. And you're good at this. You're really good at this. 
I am. And I think it's a super practical like tip for teachers because each day you can have a different focus, whether it's planning, grading, catching up on emails, et cetera. Yeah. I really liked the, um, the story he was telling on Phelps. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where he was describing the routine that Phelps had for every time he did, um, what is it called? Swimming race. Is that just yes. what it's called? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why my brain is not working. Um, but one of the things that he talked about was like having a videotape and it's not like a physical videotape, but it's like a way to visualize all the things that you're going to do to get to the very end of the thing you're trying to achieve. And so his coach would tell him, put on the videotape. And so that's that was Phelps' way of like visualizing all the things he was going to do to get to the very end. So he had already won in his mind before he had even done it. And I think that is such a powerful tool to almost visualize that progress. Do you know what I mean? I just, I don't know. I thought that was really, really good. Yeah. But I did think about you throughout all of this. And I really appreciated the fact that he was really going into research with this about what's happening with our brains when it comes Mm. to routines. And then he talks a lot about how 40% of what we're doing is like we're our brain is basically like stopped. We're deeply unconscious like at that moment. And it's because of the fact that we've developed these routines that we just don't even think about it. It's like driving to work and you're like, Mm -hmm. I didn't even, I don't even know how I got here. I don't know how I got here. (laughs) Yep. And it it saves your brain power for the things that truly matter. It does. So I felt very validated because sometimes like Billy gets on me because I am so routine oriented and reading this chapter, I'm like, see, it is a good thing. I promise. (laughs) I know. I know. All right. The next chapter, second to last was focus. And it was all about like what's important right now. And okay. I had a big takeaway because we've always talked about how like you're not multitasking, you're task switching he talked about how we can easily do two things at one time. So for example, I could be watching a YouTube video and washing dishes at the same time, Mm -hmm. but we can't concentrate on two things at the same time. So multitasking isn't the problem. Pretending that we can multifocus is, and that really resonated with me. I was like, oh, that's an interesting like perspective. I know I got that exact same thing. I have it in bold. That was the biggest thing that I ended up taking away. But what he will talk about is that you need to just really stop, take a breath and think about what is important right now. Mm -hmm. So he will often tell you, you know, when you're at work, prioritize work. And then when you get home, before you walk in that door, you're going to stop. You're going to close your eyes. You're going to breathe in real deep once let it out once and then be present for your family, which I really appreciated. And I think sometimes we're just so go, 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 go that we don't stop to think about prioritizing what's really important now. So I appreciated this chapter. Yeah. And he mentioned getting the future out of your head. And it reminded me of there's moments in the kitchen, if I'm cooking dinner, where I will go into the fridge to like grab an ingredient. And then in the fridge, I'll see something. I'm like, oh yeah, I need to throw that away. And then as I'm throwing it away, I see something else. And before I know it, like I've lost sight of what I went into the fridge for because I got sidetracked by all these other things. And so I think being able to like refocus in that moment is really good. Yeah. Last chapter. Lady, I didn't read the last chapter. I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) 
So, I mean, it was just a summary. So it was called B and it was all about how essentialism is a lifestyle. He talked about how we all have a little essentialism and a little non-essentialism in us. And he asks, which are you at your core? Like, which is your major? Which is your minor? And yes, it's hard, but it gets easier. It's a choice and it's your choice. And then this was one final quote that I felt like just kind of summarized everything nicely with a little bow on top. He said, the life of an essentialist is a life lived without regret. If you have correctly identified what really matters, if you invest your time and energy in it, then it is difficult to regret the choices you make. You become proud of the life you have chosen to live. And I was like, oh, I like that. I really, I will say I really did enjoy the book. Once I got into it, I really, really did enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but guys, if you want to read this book and implement the strategies that uh, we have the book inside of the show notes so that you can go and grab it over on Amazon, uh, we will each be doing a week in the life where we take the strategies from the book and then we implement it into our daily routine. So stay tuned for those episodes in the next two weeks. Meanwhile, go ahead and check out our website, teachingonthedouble.com. From there, you can shop our digital planners in our store. You can also submit your time-sucking hurdle for the chance to be featured in a future episode. Go ahead and subscribe to Teaching to the Top wherever you listen to podcasts. It's free to subscribe. It's just going to let your podcast service (laughs) know that you enjoy our podcast and it will automatically download and notify you when we drop a new episode, which is every Thursday morning. If you do listen through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review because it helps us get into the ears of so many more teachers. And until next time, be timely, stay organized, and be productive. Bye-bye. See ya.